0: Hi everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sackness. i Chris. Happy New Year!
1: Happy New Year to you, David. It's off to a good start here. I hope it is for you too.
0: It is. It is off to a good start. There's a lot of work to be done this year. I'm focused very intensely on these projects, giving them the old college try. And Gus is getting to the point where it's, it's almost feasible to get work done during the day because he has become fascinated with lining his toys up and color-coding them and Ooh. taking all of the Diet Cokes out of the CRISPR and putting them in a perfect straight line. And uh. he's taken all of the plastic water bottles from the living room, brought them into his room, and put them all into a straight line but there is a new level of wildness and weirdness with the kid i'll give you an example from today so i came i came home and as you know my dog is in hospice she's in palliative care and as is what happens with older creatures she had you know left a puddle on the floor so i go to get the paper towels gus is still attached to my body like a baby monkey and as i'm grabbing the paper towels I knock into my coffee mug from earlier in the morning and it shatters in all of the urine. And then, so I'm trying to get the dog to go outside to get her away from the broken glass and the piss. And I end up dragging her sort of through the puddle, getting her outside. And then I have Gus in my arms and I'm like, okay, buddy, so I'm going to put you down and dad's got to clean this up. So just, you know, so I get the paper towels. It's a three step process. The first step is that you sop it up with the paper towels. Then I take antibacterial wipes and I wipe it down. And then the final third step is a, is mopping. So the first step I'm sopping it up, I glance over and Gus is, you know, being very good. He's watching me do this. And oh yes
1: yeah, he's watching you. That's why he lines things up in a row. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then second step with the with the bacterial wipes, I'm wiping it down, and I look back, and Gus is not there because Gus has climbed onto a chair and then onto the table and is holding a bowl upside down over his head. He throws the bowl. I use superhuman dad powers to catch the bowl and then scoop him off the table. And I thought that story was so indicative of the general chaos of my life right now that I had to text my mother and my wife what had just happened. There's urine, a dog's urine, broken ceramic, uh, a kid monkeying up onto a table and potentially damaging more things, including himself.
1: more chaos uh, on demand
0: chaos on demand but that to me he also for the first time very clearly today said oh shit so he's growing in that way too Wow! (laughs) so we uh we've got a new and exciting series of challenges with the kiddo but i'm not it's Better, I have to say, it, is better than the screaming potato phase. The screaming potato phase is rough because there's nothing you, there's nothing you can do. There's no communication there. It's just a screaming potato.
1: God, I just had this really bizarre sense of deja vu, which is because guess you know is, is growing. There's just no way that's possible at all. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, the cycle. I I really just I had that on like two levels. Yeah, and it, it yeah. went on for like about I don't know, like 10, 11, 10 words of yours.
0: Yeah, and yeah. It, just, I, it, it was really, you, mean, you know, it
1: was like kind of, yeah. roo, roo, you know, a little mm, reality yeah. glitch. And then I, but I know that that's entirely, you know, internal and is is not Matrix.
0: When they say it happens fast, it sounds like a cliche, but it's as most cliches are. Let's be honest; it's pretty true. So it happens very, very quickly. And every single day, there is a new software update that he gets in his sleep, a new habit, a new like, a new dislike. The dislikes are funny because I have my day planned around, for example, now that he's lining things up, I can say, okay, from 9am until 10, I'm going to put a bunch of different colored blocks and things of that nature on the floor. So he can arrange them in ways that he likes, but you never know one day he could wake up and think, come on, dad, this is, this is last week's thing. I'm not, I'm not yeah. into arranging anymore. Okay. I'm into stacking now and these are not stackable. You can't stack water bottles. Well, you can, but no, I've seen it on, a, I it on saw it on a Chinese type of t- talent show. Are,
1: are you, are you uh, taking, you know, much video of him? Oh yeah. 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 Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's it's decent. I knew you were
1: taking and... static photos. I've seen, but I'm just I, I assumed that you were, mm-hmm. you know, taking videos. Mm-hmm. I do you have like videos of you at that age or any sort of film, you know, dynamic, nope. not just static photos.
0: Nope. Mom would get uh, disposable Kodak cameras from the drugstore and use those. And she always says, because now she takes pictures of her grandkids. And she says it's so much it's so much better now, which is an interesting thing. I wanted your take on this. I'm very technology averse. I'm not a Luddite, but I'm definitely worried about technology. I know you are too. But in general, doesn't it seem like uh, boomers seem to like technology a, a bit more? Because it's when you've lived your whole life with analog cameras, a lot of boomers seem to be of the mindset of, well, this is if I could have had this when, you know, my mother, for example, if she could have had that when I was a baby, there would be thousands of pictures of me. And I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. But regardless, yeah. but you see what I I, I I bring this up because some friends of mine brought it up recently. A friend of mine went to went home for the holidays and he was talking about on his podcast, he was talking about how much he Uh, was surprised at, at the, at the, the lack of aversion to technology, how his parents would have, you know, you've seen those picture frames that you can program digital pictures into and swipe them. They had, they had that and they loved it. And his, he's my age, his perspective is that, why would you want that? Why wouldn't you just, because he also brought up that his mother brought out old photo albums with Polaroids and Kodak pictures and things of that nature and he said that he found that to be a more enriching experience. Whereas his mother said, but those are the old days. Good thing we have digital now. So what's your, what's your take on that, with the generational gap between us?
1: Well, I think it's, uh, it's very complicated. And it, if, if we keep it focused on the notion of imagery and photography and its extensions, I think that's, the, that, that's a more coherent way to talk about reactions to technology because thereafter, I think things get kind of diffuse. I don't know of any good work on this in a cultural studies or cultural psychology way that is really looking into how the effect, the now mass effect of photography is changing people's perception very intimately of their own lives and, and families. I think there's some, re, some general notions of how people are responding to imagery in broader context. And we kind of touched on a little bit of that in the last episode about, you know, how photos can be doctored, how photos can really be constructed by studios, not really by individuals. And it's, you know, and you think of the, I mean analogously think of like the credits rolling down after Mm -hmm. a movie. And yet we Mm -hmm. think of the movie in terms of the the directors, if that's the equivalent of a novel, an author of a novel, not the same thing. You know, you've Mm -hmm. got 150 names versus, you know, one really, or maybe some supporting editors and stuff. So I think this whole thing is really important to what we Sort of hinted at last time in terms of looking at a new paradigm where that will will be. I don't think we really know what what's going on. I think there are some tremendous bonuses about digital technology in terms of of camera and video, no question. And I'm enjoying a lot of those uh, both professionally and just as you know, just for fun. But on the other hand. There are some really serious downsides where all sense of texture is being lost. All sense of, I mean, the old darkroom skills and the magic and mystery and danger of darkroom chemicals in a house. I mean, I, for instance, knew a really great photographer who's exactly in the situation that you are and Rios and Gus are in now, of, of a couple that's been together a long time. They were both professional photographers. They had a child, and they're kind of, uh, well, you know, very conscious, you know, New Yorkers, and they were worried about having these chemicals you know, in the house, and they really had to work to kind of really distinguish the dark room from anything
0: right, that right. this
1: infant could get into. And there's a whole sense of, of language that's been lost. You know, you, you used to have words like emulsion, you know, and there was a lot of thought about the technique. Sometimes I think to the detriment of, a, of having a good aesthetic eye, But I think it's very, very strange what will happen in terms of family recognition. Um, And I think back to when I was a graduate student, part of my uh, scholarship fellowship deal was teaching. And I wasn't that much older than my students then. And they were very mixed classes. And this was at the University of Washington. But one of my uh, female students wrote just an essay off her own bat open topic based on a family photograph. So I thought, well, this is a good, you know, let, let's throw that open as a, to- as a topic to the whole group. Well, 26 students, eight students came up to me after class and said, we don't have any family photos. Mm-hmm. I just don't mm-hmm. have any, you know, for traumatic reasons, but often really for class reasons. You know, uh, and certainly race figured into that. Now, that wasn't that long ago, but now you've got people in like fairly remote parts of the world. I know I know like kids in the Solomon Islands who rarely wear anything more than shorts and they have family photos you know, sometimes on a cell phone, you know, that, that kind of technology is permeated, you know, pretty in, pretty globally. And I don't know what that's going to do to us. I think it's going to be very, very odd. And the whole philosophy and psychology of, of photos, particularly family photos, and we get that amazing schism of the posed occasion family photo, the event the birthday, Mm -hmm. the Christmas, you know, whatever, and the candid. Now, that is a very, very weird binary. Think about that. There's not a lot of middle ground there, really, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. There's there's formal portraiture, which really connects back in time in terms of pre-photography, in terms of painting, but Mm -hmm. very class-based, you know, only the wealthy could afford that. Now, you've got I, I don't know I, I think it's a fascinating topic and it's something I don't know it, it, from your perspective I, if it were me I would that would be one of the things I would be journaling about all the time. just little dot you know little dashes of oh, you know and the photographs themselves are a journal record, you know
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. making a note about that. So let's put a pin in that for just a second although I am interested to continue along those lines. Chris, today, to start off at the top of the show, do you have a band and an aphorism for us?
1: I do. This is kind of an odd name. I, I don't know. It's, uh, I guess, it kind of a daydream sort of name. Fortunate Fool. I sort of like it. They are a special needs collective or ensemble they very very obviously are in uh well the larger special needs category and they they represent different you know problems mm-hmm. and and marginalization in the world and they uh-huh. have joined forces but they are united as divergent and diverse as they are in terms of of physical uh Appearance and capabilities and, and, and mental capabilities as well, I might add. They are united around one idea, which is, I think, one of our big discussion points. The question of whether or not the universe truly is evolving, as in every moment, is unprecedented or not. Mm. I mean, that's a huge binary right there. But the Mm. name of their album is called It Won't Happen Again. Mm. And it can be listened to at any different length from a sort of a single length all the way up to just as a whole conceptual album. But they, with their uh, special needs in hand, in a positive sense, but this philosophical commitment, they are involved in an algorithmic dislocation of music. So that insofar as it's possible, they really are deconstructing every aspect of melody and rhythm for sure, which completely disables or dysfunctions harmony. You know, it it really is uh and the the model for it at the start is uh, a kind of humble, but nonetheless serious piano. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And a cat runs across the keys Mm -hmm. and that's it. That's their, that was their, you know, that was the moment of insight and they're trying to capture that kind of spontaneity. And it is a kind of fight or flight sense of uh, to the music uh so fortunate fool that's my in their concept
0: i like that that? algorithmic dislocation from special need, a special needs ensemble so algorithmic dislocation so is that what is that what taylor swift is doing because she's a little special needs right she's (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, yes, she is. Yes, she have you? Is.
0: I need an update on the Taylor Swift front because I still have not heard Taylor Swift. Have you sought out any Taylor Swift music?
1: You know what? Uh, and this will be an ongoing sort of sub theme as it should be. I think uh, I've, I've not that I was ever very far away from David Lynch, but I've just reconnected with him Evaya, uh Twin Peaks, The Return. And it struck me that Taylor Swift is David Lynchian, that she's perfectly in her appearance. She's built on, I don't know if that's conscious or not, but she is perfect. She has that kind of surreal, hyper real, uh, waitress at the donut shop, princess in the other dimension kind of, you know, quality kind of like a hot Laura Dern. I think that's part of what,
0: what I have never thought of it that way, but that is 100% true. She could be working at that diner. she could be Laura Palmer. Taylor Swift could be a Laura Palmer type figure, you know she that just be. drives everybody crazy and you can't quite tell there's something there's something missing behind the eyes. But something has also come to take its place. It's not just emptiness. It's something else.
1: Well, and there's a whiteness to her that, I mean, I think she's attractive or can has a kind of look, obviously. But there's an ethnic white quality to her that is just, to me, hyper real. You know, I just very few people have that degree of presentation admit it now but this is goes back to our photographic discussion because all of these uh i mean the kardashians have started their own sort of thing going all of these women particularly and i'm not saying men don't get this treatment too but by and large not not on this level they are such manufactured creations from the Botox and injections actually physically in their bodies to the airbrushing and the, you know, the retouching. And which makes me think, I, I don't know, that just spurred us a thought of uh, back in the advertising days, one of the things that really blew me away, it was probably one of the few things that really shocked me. I don't know why, but if you go to shoot food, like for any restaurant, even for your, your basic franchise fast food, but certainly on up to higher levels of things. You have, of course, a food stylist, maybe a couple of them. It's like makeup and, you know, costume, you know, for acting talent. But the food isn't cooked it would kill you if you ate it not only it would kill you before the treatment of the you know the makeup products on it mm-hmm. and i think that's a wonderful way to think of of these current celebrities that we're getting more and more obsessed with but in answer to your question no i still haven't heard a taylor swift song i've only <laughs> heard one one video that i went and made an effort and i just couldn't do it again
0: couldn't do it again yeah i hear you so for our aphorism today looking for okay
1: <clears throat> oh by the way if i don't listeners i'm wearing my canine police unit hoodie compliments of las vegas metro police and i love the slogan jaws with paws enforce the laws but that's not my aphorism my aphorism is friendlier and more optimistic Everything you ever need to know won't be told to you, but may be performed.
0: Absolutely. This is exactly something that I was thinking about today. I was thinking about all of the things that I've learned about publishing and podcasting and marketing, ad copy, resume building. There are way, way, way too many podcasts and how-to books and people trying to tell you how to do things, but you will never learn any better than if you simply watch somebody who is successful go about their daily routine, which I think if anybody truly ever wanted to give up the sauce about some of these tips and tricks, let's say about how to make money off of tax liens on real estate. The best way to do it isn't in a 15 minute how-to video, but in an epic art film, eight hour following them through their day and just watch them. Just watch yeah. how they do it. Watch how they perform that particular activity. Your favorite writer, get a camp. I was watching a show. It's a Japanese program where a manga writer and artist goes to many of the important figures in the history of the form and will do exactly this. He films them for four hours without him in the room with cameras set up everywhere, not a crew, but just a, you know, static cameras everywhere. And then the interview takes place as they watch the footage back and he asks them questions about what it is that they're doing. So you'll find some artists have to listen to loud heavy metal the whole time; they can't work in silence. Others need complete silence. Uh, some do what are called a uh, uh, quick sketch; they do quick sketches of them. It's called a name. That's that's the name for it in manga. They do a name, which is a quick outline sketch. Others just go for it, freehand it. But I've been fascinated by this in, in in a passive way as something that I can put on the TV while I'm doing chores. And I don't speak Japanese, so if I can't see the subtitles, I don't know what they're saying. But I'll dip in and out. And I feel like I'm really getting something out of watching artists work. Like a nature channel. Have you ever seen TV for cats? TV for cats no. is just is just static camera of someone's backyard with birds flitting back and forth from the birdhouse to the doghouse to the shed. And apparently cats will just watch this all day long. Inside cats, they'll watch these birds. And watching Japanese manga artists work for, you know, it's condensed into an hour and 20 minutes, but watching them work diligently is teaching me more than any writing book that I've ever read.
1: I think that's, well, you know, I, I'm pleased to say that my uh, my guidebook to creative writing really embraces that discipline and it anticipates those those techniques, you know, of really breaking with um, the telling and, and really yep. getting, I mean, like one exercise of, and I've done it myself. I mean, I I really, I forced myself to learn some German just to be able to decode a few critical sentences by Kafka because I just couldn't understand how he could just do his magic. You know, it was, it was really like table magic right in front of me. You just think, oh, come on. I've read that sentence 15 times. How did that work? How did the world completely change in that time? You know, and if you, this is a great exercise for us, you know, kidnap notes, you know, where you cut out letters from all these different print sources You do that with a couple trying to really just copy out a writer that you might admire and do it letter by letter where you have to get some, you know, scissors and glue of some kind. You have a whole new perspective of what's going on after that.
0: Was it Hunter Thompson? Hunter Thompson wrote wrote the great Gatsby word for word. I want to say.
1: I think all the, I think that is just, I mean, it's, it's ancient, you know, it's ancient in its uh, support. It was one of the the ways that, you know, well, I mean, what other way is there really to learn, actually? And uh, I think that gets what the question of how to learn if we as we move forward to discussing about our search for new, a new paradigm of this weird epic of ours uh it's got to embrace that idea of of a new kind of learning or a return, you know, a return mm-hmm. to some old wisdom. I mean, that's a perfectly valid way to arrive at something new, and particularly with goldfish amnesiacs uh, of our, you know, that we're dealing with.
0: Absolutely. Do you have an imaginative challenge for me? Because I, I do, want to talk about this. David, this and... I want to talk about this new paradigm.
1: Okay. Well, I'm, I'm, Because it's our first episode of the new year, and I think this fits into a larger sort of thematic direction, uh, this is a hard intellectual challenge. This is um, on the Mm -hmm. philosophical, conceptual front, and I make no apologies for it. I'm going to give you two conceptual frameworks that run deep, deep, deep in I think all of global human thinking, but certainly Western civilization, they are deep philosophical problems or fields of conflict. And I want you to come up with a third triadic harmonic to balance this out that's in the same register and is of the same depth and substance. Okay, here are your two examples. These are problematic, but very deeply ingrained conflicts of concept and category. Take the notion of design. What a strange word, design. It's problematic right there. Everywhere we look, we see design in the sense of structure, order, coherence. We see it in snow crystals, veins of leaves. Uh, diatomes, honeycombs, on and on and on and on. Pattern, essence, you know, we, we just, we can't escape it. And yet another way of using the word and thinking of the concept of design is very much in terms of a plan, a blueprint, something that can be completely abstracted from the physical embodiment of design. That's a very weird idea. You look at Aboriginal uh, Australian dot paintings and you think, well, wait a minute, what, is there a, a plan? There's, there's design there, but I'm not sure I can abstract a plan. Mm-hmm. Does design mm-hmm. always imply a planner? This gets a lot of secular, you know, atheist people now kind of, oh no, the argument from design, creationism, problems there. Second one, is repetition versus singularity or the evolution of the universe versus constant secularity? Is every moment new and unprecedented or do things actually repeat? Our, li- our daily lives are filled with routines, rep- repetitions of language and action and behavior. And yet we know also that Heraclitus was right, that we can't step in the same river twice. How do we reconcile that? Another way of looking at that problem is the individual versus the unique. You hold a ball bearing in your hand made in Scobie, Illinois. You hold another one in your other hand. Now, they are the same mass-produced item. The whole point of them is that they are uniformly congruent. They are the same. But they're not. They're too different. They're individual, and we've had a real problem in the modern age with mass production becoming really a, a you know part of just daily life. H- how do we think of that? How do we think of that? They're not the same ball. Each one of them is unique and individual, and yet they are mass-produced items that, for all intents and purposes, are exactly the same. So those are two critical conceptual fields of conflict that run deep, deep, deep in the subterranean psychic grammars of Western civilization, I suggest. I think they're really, really embedded. So what I want you to do is come up with a third. And you could really kind of run a university, a new philosophy program based on on looking at these three whatever the third you come up with whatever that harmonic triadic idea is
0: so in my notes i have i have design which is structure order coherence pattern but also indicative of plan
1: yes and a planner
0: and a planner and then there is the difference between repetition and singularity which is the idea of do things move in cycles and return to a certain point or is it a constant stacking and evolution of of an idea and then individual versus unique and what you're asking me to do is to think of a third leg to the tripod yeah of of, is is this is this along the line of it's not a it's not necessarily a synthesis, it's a third thing. It's a right?
1: third thing, yeah. No, definitely not a synthesis in a dialectic sense. No, no. It would extend and 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 vibrate and oscillate and harmonize with those other two, not resolve them. And there, you know, I, I'm I'm sure there are many more of these conflicts that run run deep in our culture, but those are two that seem to me to pop up all the time in everyday life. And, and that would be that would be the other requirement here is that something that people who don't have a clue in that in the world about philosophy and deep conceptual grammars, they don't even, they, they wouldn't know how to begin to think about that. But yet their day-to-day life is an expression and embodiment of it, absolutely. And any light that we can help shed on that may give them a few more clues as to, you know, how to gain some sovereignty and a little bit of, or perspective at least.
0: I got it. Okay. Well, I don't got it, but I get it. Okay.
1: Well, it's a a (laughs) tough one, but I think it. it,
0: uh, I have a few ideas. I have a few ideas. This is
1: what we're talking about. This is what we mean by deep grammatical structures of thought within culture. And I think they're fairly simple. I think that the design one is is something that we face all the time, you know? Um, but certainly also the ball bearing issue. I mean, individual versus unique. Uh, is, the, is the world unfolding in, in new single moments each time? Or is that, you know? I mean, can we step in the same river twice? I mean, that all of those things are things that we deal with every, every day. And we're trying like to resolve that. them.
0: I like the idea of flipping that aphorism on its head and saying, you you're always stepping in the same river. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's
1: our inversion idea performed. I (laughs) mean, Uh I think that that's why isn't that a valid, you know, stance. Mm -hmm. And of course, if you do take, you know, any kind of stance, I love the word stance. I love that physically terms of combat or dance but I like it rhetorically and in terms of, of uh, more an analytic than artistic sort of position. But it's something intentional. You know, I like the idea of an intentional position and using your mind in the same way that you might use your body, you know.
0: Excellent. Now, about this paradigm, I'm interested to see where you want to go. We had a epic three hour, three hour exchange. Yeah, that, that was, was last wild, time. Man. That was a lot of fun. That was. Um, and we, we opened a lot of doors. We talked about a lot of things going on in pop culture. We talked about uh, a lot of concerns, for example, that I might have as a parent about where certain ideologies are going, but with all of this talk of triadic, modeling in terms of instead of having just binaries or dialectics having a tripod Mm -hmm. where where would you like to go first with that because i'm along for the journey
1: okay well i i just did some doodling notes and i i was thinking of okay we're in this first week of the new year which i seem to be sort of more acutely aware of this year than I uh, than I have been for the last few years. Maybe a lot of people feel that way, but I I wanted to pick up on sort of general media themes, and then a reflection on any sort of personal theme as a starting point. So here are some some things that I just have noticed in the last forty eight hours. A Buffalo Bills defensive player in supposedly prime health has a cardiac arrest in the midst of a key game, and the game obviously stops is suspended. But the reaction to this traumatic uh, injury, if you like, uh, is is ripples out. Another headline which really struck I me. Mean, <laughs> an escaped cow sinks in a mud pit and there are some really, you know, pretty nice photographs of this cow. I I think if it were me, I would be getting the cow out of the mud pit rather than photographing it. Uh, But, Ezra Pound, you know, said a lot of language was about magic of getting cows out of bogs. I love that one.
0: Mm-hmm. But then mm-hmm. in
1: another one, and this is so David Lynch, I think you'll see what's been influencing me. Like, a man has his face chewed off in a savage train platform attack. Did you need to know, Did you need the word savage in there? A man has his face chewed off you know, but this is kind of these these train platform attacks. I'm starting to notice this is another new normal. We hate that phrase, right? Well, it keeps popping up. There's another Waffle House brawl that goes viral. And of course, the subtext is you can never say anything about who's involved in these Waffle House brawls because that is a quarantined subject. Jeremy Renner the actor who's in the Avengers and so on is run over by a 14,000 pound snowplow and is in the hospital right now. And meanwhile, Elizabeth Hurley, lovely looking woman, sizzles in a bikini at 57 yet again. I don't know how many times that woman has sizzled in some sort of swimwear over the last 12 months, except that I do know exactly how many times because I programmed it into my my media analytics thing. (laughs) And it's a little bit weird. I mean, she's a very pretty woman. She's, you know, looks terrific for any age of female, but nonetheless, I don't know why she needs to keep sizzling in bikinis. I know that she claims to have a swimwear line. I don't know any women who've ever bought any of those products. I also know that that I've seen more of Madonna's crotch in the last, you know, year than I really feel comfortable at someone who's over sixty. I just wonder where that's all going to uh, to happen. So it seems like well, up to, certainly up to the Elizabeth Hurley, Madonna, and we we kind of know what's going on with it. They're trying to keep up with the Kardashians, even as they age. And I don't know when that's going to become kind of obscene, but the other stories seem to me to revolve around accidents, Mm -hmm. accidents. And okay, that's, you know, I understand why that's in the media. I do. But really that an escaped cow sinks in a mud pit Jeremy Renner getting run over by a snowplow that's and that made me think of I haven't thought of this in years when I was in high school I uh won this Quill and Scroll Society uh award and I had a short internship at the Chicago Tribune which I still think is a great regional newspaper but but then it was just it was miraculous to me because there were there were old men with cigars and suspenders working there and writing on typewriters. It was it was news in the old. But there was a sign on the wall that said, "News is not what's supposed to happen," and that has that came back to resonate. I mean, you think about how the different meanings of that. I mean, it means so many. It's like a David Lynchian line, right? It, news is not what's supposed to happen. So mm-hmm. that's kind of what my take out of the media theme of, of what of this first week of the new year. But my personal theme, I was driving back from the convenience store and my radio station, which is the university radio station, kind of a jazz soul, type of station they were playing an old song by the RB b group Shalimar a night to remember and the backup singing girls their key sort of line in the chorus is get ready get ready and i thought i love that i love that that's my theme get ready you know and that ties in with the broader thing of you know people get ready there's a train to a- come in and get ready get get you know get and the world of accidents in the media is all the more reason to try to get ready, you know? So that's kind of, that's my dialectic confusion that I'm looking for a synthesis in because (laughs) on the one accidents seem like, well, you know, really? I mean, that's kind of a pathetic stance for the news to take just reporting endlessly about accidents and it, it doesn't send a very good message for us in our own lives. Whereas I think my personal thing is, and I think you, your life is, is you know, emblematic of it too, is get ready, you know? So that's my starting point is where I sort of see the the problems of what a new paradigm would look like. And then I have some other ways of seeing the problem. But I thought I'd throw that back to you as so we got accidents. And we've got get ready, you know, two different mm-hmm.
0: views. Accidents and get ready. I wonder if there's some way to look up the analytics on uh how many people are going to watch prepper videos and wildlife survivalists and how to <clears throat> how to survive a nuclear explosion. I, I'm thinking what's interesting about the accident angle of this is you have a cow in a bog. You have a face eater, which happens more than you would expect.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yes, it does.
0: You have Jeremy Renner getting run over by a snowplow, which I'm sorry, I hope he pulls through, but it's kind of funny in a Fargo sense. And then you have this cardiac event, which to my mind is not. Accidental, I think. Ooh, that,
1: we'll see. Oh, we're already starting to get some. You know, I think.
0: Yeah, I think Damar Hamlin is more in the get ready category of things, and I think that you could put Elizabeth Hurley uh in that category as well. You know, get ready. What are we getting ready for? Let's look at this from a. Uh, what what Chris Knowles would call a synchromystic perspective. We're watching the news with different types of eyes here, and we're seeing that cows are getting stuck in bogs. And isn't it funny that all of these accidents happen? And you know, the best way to avoid these types of accidents is to be a rich celebrity. I think that the celebrity angle of this is very indicative. It's also a get ready. In terms of life extension, which we've already seen prop up in the news, there was the gentleman who was able to lower his biological age by 10 years through a therapy that I'm sorry, I can't remember what exactly it was that he did some sort of, it wasn't gene altering, it was, uh, anyway, there's always been the Bathory sense of the vampiric sense of, of age where you know you consume children's blood. This is a very mm-hmm. popular conspiracy theory that the rich We're, are consuming children's blood. We had, a, we
1: had an episode about that. And you yeah.
0: Because it turns out that in fact they do receive transfusions of younger people's blood. That's a that's a real thing. <laughs> so what's interesting to me, I'm thinking about this in terms of the third thing. And The accidents that happen, what's interesting to me is that accidents seem to go with get ready, because accidents seem to happen no matter how much you prepare, the cow always seems to end up in the bog, or the football player always seems to end up prone, that really, to me psychically over the past few years this football player collapsing does really feel like a synthesis of get ready and whoops there's there goes another accident but it wasn't an accident people were shouting this from the rooftops that you might not want to give people experimental injections that have shown to cause heart enlargement and myocarditis and which myocarditis is a condition very specifically that if you have it, and you never experience a forceful impact on your chest, you might never know. Right. But the, but the reason why these soccer players are falling like flies, this is the first football player that I've heard of this happening to. Uh, but of course, if you're a football player, no matter how many pads you wear, you're going to get hit in the chest, and you're going to... If you have myocarditis, that could cause a cardiac event. Right, And so these sorts of things, the way that they're rolled out in the media, going back to what you said, the news is not uh, what is supposed to happen, but it really does seem like the news feels like its job is to guide us to understand what is supposed to be happening
1: another paradox absolutely mm-hmm. you know another sort of lynchian paradox there that is mm-hmm. that is absolutely part of it and all of these things are very finely about because for instance get ready for me like could be a really positive thing like i love i love these background singers in this song get ready you know and it's kind of going to be a fun night but it's, it's the challenge of you know in within the song it's the challenge of a new date you know, a new lover, you know, but it's it's a fun thing. But yeah, get ready for the end of the world is the other is sort of dark side. <laughs> and accidents, well, you know, make it look like an accident is a beautiful phrase from crime. You know, I always love that. I mm. love that idea, make it look like an accident it's a, you know repeats in so many crime stories but it's also you know kind of what richard dawkins says about the whole world you know make it look like an accident you know it, it this is all just <laughs> random you know yeah, there yeah, was no planner awesome, right? there was just design doesn't need a plan it doesn't need design right you know? right, right that's right. where that that little thing comes in uh the other thing which i but i really uh, i just happened to um to run this through my uh, linguistics program, you mentioned the word transfusion, you know, in terms of new blood and young blood, you know, that kind of Mm -hmm. the world renewal sort of ceremony, sort of idea, which we desperately need. It's interesting for all of the emphasis on words with the prefix trans over the last 12 months. Transfusion, which you would think given the number of accidents, you know, like people getting run over by 14,000 pounds snow plows. You would think transfusion would come up more, but it doesn't. And it also mm. has a beautiful, in addition to the blood and the very physical embodied meaning, literal meaning, it's got a great conceptual meaning, but it ain't out there so much. You know, mm. I think that mm. that just, you just triggered that in my mind. I thought that's a really beautiful word. I mean, I love everything to do with fusion, and fission, but I think I love confusion, too. But transfusion, uh, I can say, I don't know what, what led me to think, well, because I'm attracted to that idea. Uh, I know that that is not appearing in our language the way that you would expect.
0: Why do you think that is?
1: Uh, I think we're disembodied. I think we're disconnected mm-hmm. from... You know, the physical uh, emergency room nature of transfusion. I think that a lot of that packed, you know, got really thought of still in terms of blood problems with HIV and AIDS and a lot of those mm-hmm. issues. Mm-hmm. I think transfusions are where a lot of things go wrong. Uh, and I wonder, though, how many for all this talk of accidents and illness, you know, and the bodies are lined up in Shanghai because of the new outbreak and on and on and on. Uh, I wonder if our whole sense of, of sickness and, and death is becoming more and more abstracted, you know?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. We are not supposed to look at dead bodies I was reading the book of five rings and one of Musashi's sort of 21 rules for life. So, you know, Miyamoto Musashi, Jordan Peterson, all these guys have rules for life. (laughs) And one one of his is to contemplate death. And there's a Buddhist practice, the Japanese word, I can't remember, but it is to meditate in a room with a dead body or to meditate thinking about a dead body. and Well, the, the Tibetan
1: Book of the Dead is entirely based on that as a responsibility, yeah. both to the deceased as respect and, yeah. and maintenance of the tradition, but also for your own psychic spiritual health as, as the living survivor. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think that this life extension that we see, I'm interested also to talk, about the Elizabeth Hurley and the Madonna thing and that knee-jerk reaction to it that many people who are not necessarily completely uh, cheese-brained about this kind of thing or or full of thought-terminating cliches, if you are a normal person who sees something like that, let me put it to you this way. If you encountered a 75 year old white man who was wearing a backwards baseball cap kind of the the clothes of you know like a skater kid or something I'm like with that. you I
1: know I know what you're talking you would, about
0: you would look at that guy and think what on earth is wrong with that dude there was a jet there was a guy who used to go to the gas station where I lived in Norman and I don't know if he looked that old because of Matthews or or what, but he looked very old and he dressed like that. And it's shocking. It's fashion. And the way that we look and the way that we dress obviously says a ton to other people. It's how we communicate. It's a language all its own. It's something that I in particular have never been very good at. And I would like to get better at as I get older. I'm very much a t-shirt and jeans guy always have been because it's easy, but There's along the same lines as the old man wearing the skater clothes or, uh, you know, an S and M gimp outfit in public. We can agree that those are things that you might do in private to make you feel like your truest self. But these, uh, (laughs) these magazine spreads and, you know, people sizzling, sizzling, sizzling. It's that, Shit might get overdone eventually, don't you think? You let it sizzle for too long. I mean, by the way, I did some research for the show. Don't don't get any funny ideas. I was just doing research on Google. She does look good. Can't lie about that.
1: Boy. Oh, she looks fantastic. Well, look. I, well, there are a couple of things. I, I just first of all, I think the the reverse baseball cap on anyone now. I don't care what color they are. I think I think we need to put that away. <laughs> Uh, as an ongoing thing. It's
0: in the same category as the little pinwheel on the, on the beanie. You know what I mean? It's yeah, like, no, it, no. Once but, you but, get past, I mean, even if you were to see a six year old in the little cap with the pin is be like, is it Halloween? Why are you wearing that?
1: It's just, I mean, and fashion is like that. It can be laughable and we should laugh at it. When and, mm-hmm. and things go out of fashion. That's why we say that. And, right. and certain things just should never have been. We all think that about different eras. And there are certain things that are, but certainly not appropriate in terms of age. You know, you
0: just, I mean, it you kind of have the a little question bit of, of
1: self-awareness.
0: The word is dignity, I think. <laughs> I yeah, think there is that.
1: There is there's, that,
0: there's yeah. Just, there's just having a little bit of dignity. And, but I think that, isn't that a relation to death in itself too? We all want to die a dignified death. We don't want to die kicking and screaming and age. When you, I had a friend call me up. He's the same age as I am. He's 36, very successful guy. And he said, uh, I'm having a crisis because I'm watching you, meaning me. Uh, you have a kid. He's He has two kids. He said, we're old. We can't, stay up all night drinking at the bar anymore. You know, we can't do all these things. And and I I know that, you know, as you progress, this gets more and more, more and more intense, right? And I think that I told him, yeah, man, we just kind of have to process that and move forward. It's not really worth thinking too much about, but it is worth thinking about once or twice. And there's a real sense with the sizzling at 56 and the not meditating on death, never seeing a corpse, not wanting to think about the fact that we're that we are all going to die, that drives people a little bit crazy. We need that, we need a little bit of exposure therapy. And I think culturally, in the back of their minds, the same way that you know, that people are holding out hope that our world leaders don't blow us up, and we're holding out hope that maybe oil is an abiotic mineral. And there are bigger stores of it that we think, and we will never run out of gas. And, you know, which could be true. Uh, The same way that they're holding out hope for those things, they're holding out hope that science and technology ultimately will be able to extend life permanently. One of my favorite video game designers was in the news this week. Uh, His name's Hideo Kojima. He made the Metal Gear series and Death Stranding, which I wrote a whole short book about. Brilliant guy. Excellent pulp entertainer, but he said that he is more than willing to be first in line to become an AI and get his mind put into a machine so that he can hang out as a hologram forever. So I think that there is a real sense in the news of, uh, of priming. The news is not what's supposed to happen. Uh, exactly but there's also this overwhelming anxiety that's being not being addressed it's being papered over with what i think are very suspicious promises of of living to be 250 years old but looking like we look now or living forever in a machine so i think those two things are both kind of like they're both instruments of uh control that to me seem no different than your sort of normal christian conception of heaven Like it'll all be fine once we get in heaven to go back to david lynch in heaven everything is fine yeah right? and we just have to get there we just have to make sure that we realize chris this is very important that on our way to paradise accidents will happen.
1: Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Have, have you ever heard of the 64% phenomenon? I'm
0: sure oh, you have. Yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure have. I have too. Yeah. But well, I, it's it, not coming to me.
1: It, it's it's come up with, from uh, the study. It's sort of a meta study of market research over, it was like a 10 year period of time, but major reputable market research companies like the Pew Research Group, Gallup, uh, several of the think tanks, Stanford Research Institute, they would conduct these major cultural surveys and they would ask questions like, where does your greatest hope for the future and the survival of humanity reside? And 64% of people would say in technology. Mm -hmm. And then they would ask the question, what is your greatest fear? What do you think is the greatest Mm -hmm. challenge or crisis or potentially an an antagonist that humanity faces? And 64% say technology, you know? And I think, I mean, that's been repeated and repeated and repeated to go back, you know, to our question of whether or not the universe is evolving or whether or not we're just cycling and recycling. But I think that's an interesting phenomenon that, that we, we, and it makes perfect sense. You know, your greatest strength is your greatest weakness. Your greatest asset is your greatest fear of loss. You know, Mm -hmm. Uh, your gods are monsters. Your monsters are gods or somebody else's God is your monster. You know, that kind of of polarity and, and interrelationship that you can't get away from. But I like this idea of, well, I like your focus on the Elizabeth Hurley thing because for, several, for a couple of reasons. Uh, I think Madonna is in a really tragic sort of sunset boulevard category of having been a major star uh, across media with a kind of David Bowie chameleon reinvention of self capability that was her trademark in in many, it's always discarded Mm -hmm. fashion, Mm -hmm. picking up a new persona, a new look. And it must just be hell inside her head, trying to keep up with Taylor Swift, who like you, you know, in in her thirties now with only, you know, so many Christmases and summers left, as your friend said. So that, that must be just a terrible sort of of game that's that's going on in 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 Madonna's psyche. I think that would be a very interesting film to kind of have a injection into her being in a David Lynch mm. union but also very yeah. physical sort of way. But Elizabeth Hurley, I mean as far as I know, she was she's a model and she was an actor who was in some film with Hugh Grant, the British who, yep. I think he did. Has, he's gone on to do a few other things. And I kind of like him. I, I don't I think Love actually he plays the prime minister. or I, I have a little dim understanding of him that he's kind of a, a, a good looking dimwit with a little bit of awareness that he's mm-hmm. is a dimwit. And I don't remember what they were in together. But she's it's called Notting Hill.
0: Kidding. <laughs> what? Oh, 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 yes. Right. OK. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm really upset that I know that. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but <laughs> I had to throw that out there. Well, look,
1: she is a she is a beautiful woman and she she's always been beautiful. You know, it's not an age thing. And I but I just don't understand why she's always Kind of showing up, posing and showing off her body, and I don't entirely buy the fact that she's got a a line of swimwear or long. I don't know. That just seems, yeah, okay. Whereas I think there are uh, really sexy, beautiful women of the, of the past, say Diana Rigg. The I saw her on the uh, at the West End in London, and she was just mesmerizing. And she was, mm-hmm. you know, fully clothed most of the time. She did do a nude scene, but. Uh, Helen Mirren, you know, and we Mm -hmm. get all this thing of women needing to show attractiveness despite the age. I mean, I certainly understand that. And I'm, you know, I like to see naked women near my age. I mean, I'm all in favor of that. But my conflict, that's why I notice it, because I feel a conflict. I Mm -hmm. don't feel turned on and i'm starting to get turned off by all of the page six sort of type of of soft not soft porn even just slept mode
0: slept mode yeah yeah
1: yeah yeah. Yeah. i just it just seems like we got so much of it and covid (laughs) cranked up only fans and you hear about all the stuff of these women do you know you You hear about about guys who
0: are I, I was talking to this same friend of mine and we were laughing about this because you'll see men in their mid twenties who get Viagra. They have erectile dysfunction. And a lot of them blame the ubiquity of porn throughout their entire lives. And we were I've laughing about it. News. We were like, we we're like, you know, we're in our mid thirties, no problems here. Right. I mean, I have a kid. It's not exactly like sex is happening for me all the time. So if there's a hint that it's going to happen, ready to go. Get ready. But that's the flip side, isn't it? Right? Yeah. yeah get ready. Get ready. But that's the flip side. That's is what that getting ready
1: really means. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's like, get, get a boner. Uh, but the basic idea is that when it's not around all the, <clears throat> excuse me, when it's not around all the time, then you don't, uh, then when it does happen, you feel like you're ready to go. However have you ever seen ancient Minoan women's dresses where the breasts will just are just out? Have you ever seen these? Oh yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Like Phoenicians or something like that. So this isn't necessarily new, uh, but I think what's new about it is that it's in our pocket. We have boobs in our pocket whenever we want to see them. And that might be uh, leading to what you're describing this sort of fatigue Newton, perhaps slut fatigue might be the term for it.
1: I think that's a great phrase. I know that that would attract some very negative sort of reactions, particularly from certain women, but I think it's very, very fair. Hey,
0: I'm with you. I, I love women being sluts. I think it's great, but we'll call a spade a spade. We'll call a slut a slut. <laughs>
1: yeah. And I think it's, it, it it's this constant ploying and cloying, for essentially, you know, monetary reasons, and it comes it it comes connected with things like not just the Me Too movement, but this whole sense of hands off, you know, this whole sense of yeah, you, you know, don't really engage, you know, it's there's a whole sort of attitude towards certainly masculine heterosexual responses, and I, I find it just kind of and also, the main thing is it's just relentless. Mm-hmm. It's as relentless as Muzak.
0: You Every know? single day. Every... Just... I love the comparison to Muzak with these certain ideological ideas uh, because I think you just articulated how I feel about a lot of the discourses that go on right now, whether it's something like COVID or racism or sexism or homophobia or this or that. If you were to put me on a desert island for three years – and then some guy came in with a clipboard and a survey and asked me how I felt about any of those things. I would say, well, I don't like racism, and I don't like sexism, and I don't like homophobia. Uh, I don't even really think that you should be cruel to fat people, although being cruel is relative because you know, is it really is it crueler to let them do that? Or but anyway, my point is, if somebody asked me that after three years of complete deprivation from this constant onslaught. I would have very different answers perhaps than I might have now, which is the answer would have a caveat to it is that I'm against all those things, but goodness gracious, I am sick of hearing about it. I'm so tired of hearing about it every day, every single day of my life
1: it's badger baiting. I think, you know, it really is. It's kind of like, all right, well, you want to get a reaction and then, but anything that gets said or any kind of response is somehow brutish and, and uh, you know, savage, almost not quite as savage as face chewing, but you know, well, what are you supposed to think about all this? You know, I mean, you get, I, I mean, Dave Chappelle had a couple of, of good, Routines about this going back before we, kind of his mega rise to stardom. About, um you know, a, there's a woman in a bar and, and she's, you know, her titties are sort of smooshed up and popping out of her. Shirt. And uh, he goes, I understand that you may not be a whore, but you are wearing a whore's uniform.
0: Yeah. The joke is that he's, if he walked in wearing a police officer's uniform and somebody said, officer, officer, we need yeah. your help. Oh, excuse me yes. just because i am dressed like a police officer does yes. not mean
1: <laughs> yeah and that's pretty good that, that's good inflection of, of Chappelle. that's very good yes that's exactly that's the full context mm-hmm. so i think it is this sort of cloying ploying uh annoying uh onslaught of conflicted message because let's face it it also comes at a time when you know we're supposed to be hoping for admiring respecting supporting women not for what they look like not for tits and ass you know that's absolutely off limits you know and i think it's just too much ideological freight for the track to bear but it's certainly a problem when you've got this oncoming train of nonstop boobs and booty.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's it's essentially, if one were to get conspiratorial with it, it almost seems as though we're being programmed to not speak up about what's in front of our faces. That everything's a happy accident in the news yep. is not what's supposed to happen. Yeah, the news the news is (laughs) what well in this case it does seem like you know if you're on the one hand supposed to just not acknowledge some of the freak shows that you see walking around the street we talked about san francisco and we talked about people defecating on the street and walking down the street naked and and all of this kind of stuff and uh but you're not supposed to say anything about it. You're not supposed to say what you think is real. I mean, I've seen this with art where I've critiqued art and <clears throat> or books, and people have gotten mad at me for that because you're not supposed to say it. You can read bad writing, but you better not ever vocalize that you think that it's bad. And I will become completely flabbergasted by this on an almost weekly basis where I'll just say something, and a lot of people find it refreshing, but some people don't, and find out that nobody is ever arguing the substance of what I've said. They're arguing the fact that I've said it at all, which I think is really, really indicative of a more crushing totalitarian bent that could be coming down the line or might, you know, in fact, might already be here. It might be setting up shop. Like when they're building a coffee shop across the street you think, Oh hell, that's going to be so noisy in the morning. Like this street was so peaceful. And then they had to build this freaking coffee shop and now I have to wake up every morning and people are driving their stupid little scooters in and yelling out front. And, you know, my street used to be so peaceful, but that's sort of how it feels right now is that there is this, um, just the, the, the rapid shift in how you're supposed to feel about this kind of stuff, like be extremely afraid. And then all of a sudden, like be completely calm with what you see in front of your eyes, right? Be extremely afraid of Russia or COVID or whatever, but whatever you do, do not be afraid of those dudes who are coming down toward like, who are coming towards you in a dark alley to take your wallet. Like, don't, don't, be afraid of them. Don't, don't, not what's in in front of your eyes. What we say, what we say you should be afraid of is what you should be afraid of.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's really, it's, it's emperor's new clothes with uh, a really insidious twist about the implication being, yeah, don't trust your own perceptions. Don't trust your own life live instead in the metaverse and do what the game masters are and are live about. forever.
0: Yeah, and live, yeah. live, live for live as long as you want to, right? Do you want eternal life? Because you can have it, you can look young forever. And when you finally do eventually die, we can upload you to this thing as long as you think and say the things that we want you to say. That's the care, the carrot and the stick. <laughs>
1: Well, that part of of the scenario currently is the, is what, I guess, terrifies me, if anything. Because if you, I was thinking about this, okay, it, to, to get to a more positive place about what a new paradigm would really look like. And we'll leave it open if that's something that we would want. Because just because it's a new paradigm, and we like, you know, we have some good feelings about that in terms of some heroes of the past, like Terence McKenna, that doesn't mean the new paradigm is going to be good. It could it could go a very different way. There's no uh, valence necessarily built into paradigm. But I thought, okay, well, where are we now? And we've sketched out. I think we're we're pulling at some threads here and getting a kind of a profile of what the current paradigm is because it we're talking about a big, you know, multi tentacled idea that is yeah. really driving culture. So I, listeners shouldn't think that we have a simple answer to this. But I wrote down, okay, well, we have a techno-social crisis that challenges the validity of our core sciences in key ways, not to mention just street-level common sense. Okay, that's one. We have an unprecedented mental health pandemic on the loose. That's I'm saying that, I, maybe some people don't agree, but at the same time as an implosion, as in a total systemic collapse of our educational and healthcare systems, this speaks to what we you've been, we fetishize breaking taboos while in the same hysterical breath, manufacturing more really hard shell taboos at viral speed. I mean, Mm -hmm. there are so many things that you can't do now. I mean, you know, it's just ridiculous. uh, And it's getting worse. But I think this is really the heart of it. Most importantly, we are simply losing the ability to run our civilization in fundamental pragmatic ways at the nuts and bolts utilities level. We don't have the expertise or we're losing the ability to generate new expertise. We're developing greater specialization that very few people have the ability to understand. And I'll have a great example of that in a moment. I think we may soon end up as Eloy really grateful for some more locks. I don't think that we've got what it takes to keep this thing going. Not for Mm -hmm. long. I mean, you look at the levels of engineering expertise that we need. I was just digging into the whole little world of avionics you know, all the airplanes, we, we think they're, we'd like more airplanes again in the air because, you know, get, get things moving again after COVID, although we realize more airplanes is going to be more damage to the, you know, the environment. Well, the world of technology that makes that happen, we're losing the ability to, to handle that. We're going to need AI help on multiple levels to manage that just the signal technology, the transponder technology came across a great term an extended squitter. Mm. That's a new kind of transponder that you need under federal aviation law. Uh, And there's just, I mean, this is just one aspect, you know, think about, I mean, our cars, it used to be, you know, like part of being, a man was being, you know, kind of a little bit good with mechanical tools, you know? Well, now you need like $250,000 worth of diagnostic equipment for new cars, you know? And mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. the garage, I mean, I grew up with, like, my Latino friends were always, like, in their car, under their car, you know? Like, yeah. I, I had a good friend. I never saw his face because he was always working. He always had the hood up, you know? Mm-hmm, it was mm-hmm. only on Friday night, you know? And, and he could, would actually get out, dry, you know, cruising, you know. But mm-hmm. we're losing all of that expertise. So that is one of these uh, critical elements that is going to have to figure into a new paradigm. And I thought about an aspect, because we, you know, said so maybe a new paradigm isn't going to be something we like. You know, and you meant you know this sort of fascist totalitarian control coming often from the left, surprisingly, about what we can say and can't think. Well, here's another one, and I'll show you how I rocked. I mean, I've, I've been thinking about uh, the the Great American Songbook, particularly the Index of Folk Songs. And I was thinking of Over the Rainbow, which is probably one of the most beautiful songs of the 20th century. Many people think it's the greatest song of the 20th century, which says a lot up against, you know, Elvis, the Beatles, Motown, on and on and on. But also the song Big Rock Candy Mountain, which is a hobo's fairy tale of what a paradise would be. It comes from the actually the 19th century. It was written by a guy named McClintlock but recorded in 1928. And so it was written long before it was recorded. Woody Guthrie and a whole bunch of people uh, recorded. But it too is like where troubles melt like lemon drops. We're in the Big Rock Canyon where liquor comes pouring down the rocks. You know, mm-hmm. it's all about convenience and safety, but really the paradise of desires fulfilled, you know? And so... Interesting enough, we've got porn, obesity, addiction, rampant now. Maybe we did find the big rock candy mountain. Maybe we did go over the rainbow. But what is important about those songs is they come out of eras of great deprivation. You remember the story of my grandfather, Santa, for the famous Mm -hmm. Night Before Christmas, and the editor saying, make him fatter, you know? Right. Right. There really was a time about that when people didn't have enough food and parents, you know, your age in Oklahoma were really wondering if they could feed their kids. And I'm not saying that there aren't people like that today, but I'm saying that that was a cultural aspect deep, deep in the American psyche of its time. Work work everything's about avoiding work who to re reward the people who do the least physical work to do physical work in american society is a racial cultural comment it's it's more than that it's a caste system not class caste system
0: mm. you know mm-hmm. i
1: mean it's actually shocking when someone says well i clean my own toilets i don't have a cleaning woman Well, that means you're not a power broker, right? You're not really a civic leader. You're not a celebrity, you know? I mean, it goes on and on and on, but all hinges on work, I think, an avoidance of work, a fear of work, a horror of work. And I would put that up there with, uh, not the horror of death, but I think what you were talking, what you meant by the horror of indignity, People wouldn't mind if they just vanished, you know. No pain, you know. You're just not there. If that's what they believe, but they don't like sickness and hospitals and smells and you know not being physically able and and having to suck up to some family member who really hates you, you know, because you really need to get on that bedpan. That's the part of the die. Dy- it's the dying, not the death. But dying and work with your hands is what our society fears the most, I think. What do you think about that?
0: I thought that was a a really great powerhouse statement. And it actually got me kind of feeling a certain way. I feel like that uh, that was pretty powerful. And I think that you're right. I think that you can link the fear of of dying, I should say not death, but dying. And the fear of work with a fear of pain mm-hmm. that ties yep. in sickness. Yep. And I've been, as I said, studying the book of five rings and to somebody like Miyamoto Masashi, who was a Ronin, who wandered the 17th century countryside alone practicing with his sword, occasionally doing work for hire, occasionally fighting the the odd random Ronin, 60 fights, no losses. To somebody like that, pain is uh, its a very important part of life. Musashi says that you should try to avoid all earthly pleasures. Total ascetic in this way. Don't eat good food. Don't sleep with women. Don't, you know, never laugh. Don't have fun because you need to be working. You need to be honing your craft. And he said something very interesting, which is that the pursuit of pleasure and aversion to pain is the exact same thing. It's scratching an itch that will never go away when you have that mosquito bite and you can't stop scratching it. Yeah, or a, a sore in your mouth that you can't quit tonguing. It's the same sort of idea. So the Buddhist prescription—I mean, Buddhist Buddhism is all about, uh, you know, realizing that all life is desire. They call it suffering, but it's really desire. It's it's wanting pleasure and avoiding pain, and wanting to go. But the the trick about that is that you never actually, <clears throat> you know, people. Look for meaning as though that was something that could be told to them when, in fact, it's something that needs to be performed, like you said in your aphorism. And what people will never understand is that if you spend your whole life glued to your phone, watching porn, taking drugs, eating fast food, trying your best to sizzle at 56, you're never going to actually experience the kind of meaning that I would argue, I would speculate those people in Oklahoma in 1928 might have felt every day of their life. In addition to pain and loss and suffering, they might have actually felt real meaning to what they're doing.
1: I think that's really well said, and I think that is part of a a great mystery and conflict in our moment in history right now, because I, without anywhere near the degree of articulate expression that you've just offered. I think many people feel this and they feel it even if they don't have a perception of who those people are. Even our Gen Z goldfish snowflake lost <laughs> in time uh, folks looking for safe places and, you know, instant gratification and constant gratification in the back of, of, cause it's not that long. I mean, they, the, those are the ancestor ghosts that are, you know, still very present. And there is a sense that there was meaning there was something going and it was deep and structural and it was architectural and it was in clothing and fashion and music. And I think that's one of the things that David Lynch picks out so beautifully as a counterpoint to the deeper metaphysical battles between, you know, light and dark, good and evil he grounds it in a timeless America of the 50s and 60s which has been kind of enshrined and fossilized within film and TV. It doesn't really exist neatly anymore, you know mm-hmm. but it no, does no. As, as images that we're used to you know and yeah. I think that that even if we don't really have any sense of what people, say, in the 20s and 30s we're dealing with and really don't know, it, we still have some sort of, it's like the aftershock of of mm-hmm. the A-bombs. We, mm-hmm. we may not, that may not be in any way conscious in a whole bunch of people, certainly younger people. Nevertheless, you know, not everyone sees ghosts, but that doesn't mean they're not here, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I definitely see ghosts. I see them all the time. I had a ghost encounter not a few days ago. They're turning over land across the street to build a new house. And I think Here it might have been turning over land. Yeah. And I think it might have disturbed a spirit because I woke up uh, at about 1130 two nights ago. <clears throat> and, you know, one day we'll have to go through all of my different ghost stories because I have dozens of them but uh my grandmother would see ghosts as well so it might be a genetic passed down thing but uh i heard a, one of gus's toys going off which is not unheard of this is not an unusual thing but the persistence and the consistency of it and the fact that different buttons were going off definitely concerned me so i walked into the room and i opened it and sure enough there's a to- there's a toy on the floor and the point of the toy is that it's a bunch of different locks, right? That he has to figure out how to unlock. And then you open it and it says, oh, good job. You, you unlocked the lock. Okay. And uh, I go to turn the toy off. And as my finger is getting closer and closer to the button, I haven't pressed it yet. The toy says, uh, all right, well, goodbye. And then. I turn it off and I feel like somebody had just poured an ice bucket over me. The whole room dropped about three or four degrees in temperature. And I immediately felt a transient, but not entirely friendly presence there that was upset with me for, for playing with that. But I thought that that was an interesting toy for it to choose the one that had all the locks on it. Um, In terms of, uh, you know, seeing ghosts and understanding our our ancestors, getting in touch with that that David Lynchian Americana style thing. I th- I think that you know people's return. A lot of my friends are into this, but return to kitschy Americana, cowboys and diners, uh, roadside attractions. What is the thing? Fifty cents to see the thing. I think that that is an American a 2023 American style ancestor veneration in the classical sense, right? That's as, that's what we're getting at when we do things like that. We are sort of paying our respects and trying, well, people who are into it anyway, are trying to pay respects by going antiquing and looking at old photographs. There was this great antique store in Portland that used to have a big wooden box that was full of old polaroids that they'd collected over the years you could buy five for eight or something like that and nobody knew who the people in the pictures were these were all found at estate sales or what have you And, and you could go through it but i think that uh to bring it back to our estate sale there is something very tangible about coming to grips with death in that buddhist death meditation sense by being around a dead person's things and by being around, you know, artifacts from the past, archaeology at its core is getting in touch with these with these long dead things. I saw a quote today that I, I I wish I knew where it was from, but uh, uh, that architecture only really becomes architecture if it uh, survives its purpose and becomes something else, becomes a part of the landscape, becomes something that survives out into the into the future, and in a sense becomes pointless the way a rotary phone would be pointless today because we all have cell phones. And I think that a return to that, a return to the thingness of objects and the, the heaviness and the concreteness and the pointlessness of them. I think they become totem sacral, sacral sacred objects that link us to our ancestors and to the concept of death and, through so doing get us in touch with the fact that we're going to die that's my message but that's my new paradigm it's not duck and cover or hide or be you know scared that the government's going to kick down a swat team's going to kick down your door and force you to drink fluoride or something like that it's more uh i'm much more in the get ready perspective but get ready for death whenever it does come and have a good relationship with it. Because through listening to you talk, it really has become a potentially oversimplified, but helpful to think with truism to me, not a truism, uh, uh, an aphoristic type thought perhaps, but that most of these problems, most of these problems being uncomfortable in your own body uh, pain avoidance, uh, feeling lost alone, uh, being way too online, obsessing over ideology and discourse rather than concrete reality. It's all a fear of death. Wouldn't you find it very surprising to meet somebody who had a good relationship with the past and with their ancestral spirits and with their own death, and find that they were really, really concerned about COVID nineteen, like deeply, like deeply afraid, wearing eight face masks and having oh, five I needles sticking out of their I arm. I couldn't
1: imagine that. I think or sizzling at fifty six.
0: Could you see them sizzling at fifty six, or would they no. be busy in their basement or garage tinkering? with something or writing a novel or going for a hike or doing literally anything other than what these people are doing. These people have not come to grips with death.
1: I think that's well said. I think that really is fleshing out this. And that is a good example of where the conclusion seems uh, simple. It's simple to say, but the resonance and ripples of it is deep with, with meaning. And I think you're absolutely right about both those examples. I think that someone who really is whatever uh, gender, sex, whatever, and whatever however they've made their living, they, they feel good at, about themselves at 56. And they're in proportion to, uh, you know, kind of flaunting things. And you know here's a good example is by contrast, I mean, Jane Fonda was certainly a hot babe you know, when mm-hmm. she was here and she's been a very, very attractive. She's been kind of on the cutting edge of a lot of things from, you know, aerobics to whatever, and she still looks great. She's not out there doing that. And she's older, you know, at some point there's kind of a, just a natural acceptance. And and I think what you said at the start, dignity, you know, that that is kind of important, but if you were really connected with any kind of ancestor sense of history and your own place in history, and you were kind of relaxed in your get readiness for all of life, which is what the mythic heroes of the past, you know, like Odysseus, always, you know, a man for all occasions, a person for every situation, then you wouldn't be freaking out about COVID and wearing two masks, walking around in Mm -hmm. open air, you know, you just wouldn't
0: yeah you, you wouldn't cringe, be, yeah
1: but not insane
0: yeah yeah exactly the same way that you wouldn't I don't know try to climb a mountain in a speedo or something like that well you know I'm not crazy but I'm also interested in climbing that mountain I um I want to put a pin in it there I think that okay. was great You're
1: ready for your imaginative challenge
0: answer yeah I'm ready and the reason You're why ready? I want to put a yeah, the reason why I want to put a pin in it there is because this might be even, this might be a, a discussion. <clears throat> but I wrote down some thoughts. And what I'm doing right now, listener, why I'm quiet is because I'm making sense of my notes. This and doesn't I often...
1: expect you to nail this one in one go, because I want to start off at a very high level of thought because you're the number one person who uh in my life who could play at this level with me so
0: (laughs) well thank you i so when it comes to design structure order coherence pattern essence plan and evolution i wonder if a word to think about there isn't sandbox Mm. or playground okay or wind up toy something that isn't quite because evolution is the idea that um the well the survival of the fittest and that you know genes that aid a creature in in going forward will be propagated because that thing will survive longer but it's very very dependent as you mentioned Richard Dawkins on things like chaos and it's just an accident it wasn't it wasn't meant to be there and then design is that something is you know every snowflake is designed down to its you know each little thing but maybe something perhaps in between the 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 ball bearings uh there's individual versus unique and the word that comes to mind there is what what about destiny you know what about where they're going what about how the future works on things in the present something that is individual or unique in the present is perhaps not taking into account the fact that the future already exists and that the magnetism of it, magnetism is another word that I have written down here of Mm -hmm. pulling those things uh, uh, forward. I think that, you know, perhaps, you know, design and, and evolution are both on the timeline. They move from past, present, and future. And I'm thinking about ways to play with that about the future, perhaps pulling on the past and, you know, like two different roots of trees sort of interweaving. So magnetism is a big vibration. Is another word that I have written down here. We've talked about oscillation and vibration, mm-hmm. and I think that applying yep. those concepts to this might be starting to get to this triadic harmonic. And then, uh, for for whatever reason, I don't. I'm just going to tell you what I have written down here. Dude. because to be to be honest with you, I maybe we can parse this out. I wrote down Zeno's paradox about the arrow, yeah, the idea okay. of, 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 you know, the point A to point B, but then between point A and point B, there's a point C, so on and so forth, down, yes. down, 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 down. And how when you get down far enough, you know, there's always going to be little spaces in between things. There's massive amounts of space between, between atoms. And what's the deal with all that space? Now, these are, these were my notes, and I know that it sounds very disjointed, but I was thinking uh, hard about it, and I hope to think more about it in the future, but the property of something, you know, uh, between repetition and singularity, like what about, what about emergent, maybe emergent is a good word for some of these things.
1: I think it's a great, I think the magnetism idea is important. It's a very strange concept, which comes at us from, from multiple points of view uh, both historically and in, in more recent times about the future acting as some sort of magnet or attractor pulling, pulling us forward. Right. That comes from, right. from a, a, a range of, of uh, thinkings in, in the realm of physics, but it, it, we see it in, well, we see it in David Lynch's movies. We see it in, mm-hmm. in a lot of ideas about art and film. It's one of the, the peculiar uh, driving forces within photography and mm-hmm. film, you know, that magic thing of, of the cup that Gus was you know, you know, about to knock over or whatever. You know, it, it smashes on the ground the dog, where well, you could reassemble it, you know, that mm-hmm. magic time reversing, time's arrow and we think of, you know, the great metaphors for time, a river, an arrow, like a
0: wheel. Like, what the mm-hmm. hell? What is it, man? You well, know? What about, yeah, what about the friction between potential futures, right? What if there's a kind of spark that happens when potential futures are butting up against each other? So it's difficult. A design implies a designer in the past that put a plan in motion that set a ball rolling, that set the river flowing and all of that. But, and so does evolution, you know? Somebody slips on a banana peel and then a baby appears, et cetera, et cetera. But what about about the friction, the sort of rhizomatic friction and interlocking of potential futures all competing, that's a Darwinian, right? Like competing for our present. To, to kind of influence what we do in the present without denying that the past does exist, that there's also a past there too. Right. I'm just, I have this, I have this image of, you know, all these different neurons and synapses. I don't know why I think of the future as a Lovecraftian and God with all these different arms and tentacles that are inter- interlocking and pulling us in certain directions, but
1: yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do, I think that the, I just think that the third, the, the the triadic harmonic has to take into account uh, time, time perception and space perception, right? Like what, what is it that we know about how time and space really work? Uh, how, how can that be applied to things that have happened in the past? How much of the past do we understand? So this is a broad, this is turning into a mini essay. To answer your question, but I I think that it requires uh, stepping outside of a dialectic, which is what you wanted me to do. You know, you, you, you wanted that kind of, that kind of step. No, I
1: think you've, you've answered that challenge very well. And I think that uh, as simply put, and there's a great, there's nothing simply put, uh, particularly not concepts this intense, I think your focus on the time element is absolutely insightful and and, and really to the heart of this whole thing. Because what the the two examples that I gave you in in different forms, uh, they really are different, but they they recapitulate the great questions that the pre-Socratics started with. And also the Indian philosophical traditions. Is the world one thing or many? Mm -hmm. Is change real? And if it is real, is it necessary? Which is another way of saying, does it go only one way? Is it time arrow, river, or more wheel? So those are mm-hmm, those are mm-hmm. critical elements. But time is the is the key. And I think the suggestion would be that if we are embracing a new paradigm, if we are in any way heading towards something that could really be thought of as a new paradigm in either a good or bad sense, but certainly in a good sense, we as a species are going to have to have a new thought frame about the nature of time and our relationship to it, our oscillation within it. Nothing significant can happen until Mm -hmm. that. And notice that that's a very peculiar thing about things like the techno singularity where nanotechnology, robotics, supercomputing makes humans no longer human. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're already there. We're prosthetic gods or gods in ruin, as as Emerson said. We're already there. We're mm-hmm. already dependent mm-hmm. on those networks, and we're goldfish and and kind of empty ghosts without that support system. You know, if the internet goes down, we stall. <laughs> you know, so we're already there, and all of that really is just about dealing with disembodiment, embodiment fear of death, but a true new thinking of time, which could happen all the way down to the level of time zones and uh, how much work people put in for what work means in terms of, of job, you know, time. Um, We forget all of this. We forget the amazing consensus of time zones You know, and and how that worked with trains and how that works with airplanes and all of these subsystems that are so deep. And, you know, Mm -hmm. a lot of people Mm -hmm. go, well, we want to get rid of, you know, let's throw all that stuff out. Oh, yeah, you still want your you still want standard time. Otherwise, everything starts to fall apart. You still want the calendar, don't you? because you can't really think without those frameworks. All the, 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 the new left approach of just burn everything down. Well, no, that's not going to work. It's, it's a much bigger deal because it's so ingrained. I think that it's good to put uh, a really bright, shiny pin in your notion of the time concept, the time factor, because I think that is at the heart of our whole discussions about what defines modernity and the modern problem. We've inherited layers, fossilized layers of definitions and understandings and assumptions about time. And we're really not sure where we stand with those now. And mm-hmm. we need to get down archaeologically, psycho-archeologically, and really dig that in. And maybe, maybe invent some new perspective. You don't yeah, think perspective being what, invented, but that's possible.
0: What if, it, yeah, what if instead of a river, what if it's more like bubbles, like suds or something like that? These kind of emergent things that brush up against each other and occasionally link together then pop and then another bubble comes out and it looks very similar to the bubble that came before but but it's not I, these are all I think really important things. and I like what you said about not wanting to throw the calendar away because it's important to it's important to think about these things on on the practical level and on the higher metaphysical philosophical level too because yeah it's important to think about, the reality of what time might be or the irreality of what time might actually be, whether time even exists, but it's also super important to keep a daily planner (laughs) through all of that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and and to, you know, to go back to an ongoing theme of ours, the problem of of scientism and, you know, uh, an overly revered priest cast of people who may or may not really be deserving of the authority. When you hear discussions about time, it's always a certain kind of physicist who's talking about it. And, and talking about atomic clocks and you know very specialized things. When the entire point, if time exists in any way that is meaningful at all, is that it affects everyone. I mean, you you have a Gus has a right to have a view about time because time has a perspective about gas, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think to, to close this up, but I do think we should come back to, and I will, what I might do is I have an imaginative challenge for next week. That is kind of the, the fun commercial entertainment, more, uh, you know, TV series planning sort of take on this. But I think it, one of the things that, Uh, is very successful with my students. And I always start off very early. I try to come up with many examples, but complementary relationships and oscillations between uh, concepts and words. And the example I always start them off with is inference versus implication. A speaker or writer implies, a listener or reader infers. You know, and they get onto that, they get onto that relationship and they start seeing other word binaries that oscillate and hum. Mm -hmm. And very quickly they start doing that hand gesture that i am you know, they start seeing this, you know, this energy going back and forth and what were formerly static things that they really didn't give much thought to because it's just, you know, static words, and they thought they were interchangeable like those ball bearings, mm-hmm. suddenly they think, oh, there is a difference. It, it's the same, but the perspective shift makes it different, you know? And I think mm-hmm. that's that's a cool way to, to wrap that up. I think you did a good job with that. I wanted to throw a really, uh, you know, a gnarly one, a gnarly one at you.
0: I'm glad. I, I That was one of my favorite ones. A lot of them are really fun. And that one was fun in a different way. That one was fun in a, well, shit, I'm not going to be able to answer this. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's not going to be able to answer it satisfactorily, but it's. And that's a really good, you know, position,
1: you know, a stance to take because you kind of, you're released. I mean, you're smiling. You felt, you know, that was kind of not an unpleasant experience. That's because you're curious and flexible. Not everyone would feel that way. A lot of people would go,
0: oh, (laughs) i gotta work i gotta think man i don't want to think bro thinking hurts you know like a a secret
1: with you know battery acid poured on it you know you see people you know that's often what happens i just ask people simple questions and they
0: oh oh
1: my god
0: that is the story of my freaking life man that is the story of my life asking simple questions everybody gets mad and then i say what did i what did I do wrong here? I I was just asking a question. That's
1: one of many reasons why we have such great rapport. I'm so oh. glad to have I feel less less isolated and less oh. you know. Uh yeah.
0: my biggest thing is just looking out at the world and saying, Does anybody else think that this is weird? Anybody yeah, else think uh, this is weird? Come on, let's be honest.
1: Well, and and I I you know to tie into something that you brought to the four, several times in different ways it's, it's an invitation to play yep. you know you've mentioned the importance of play and mm-hmm. you know homo ludens you know the sense of game it's like mm-hmm. that's what these questions in this cure it's not to you know confront someone you know it's not yep. like it's not that it's like getting engaged in a curious fun game playing way you we're know?
0: having fun we're having fun that's I don't want to drag this on too much, but you and I really seem to hit a stride about an hour in. That's what that's when we start hitting like the real the real gold. We're oh geez, we're almost almost two hours in now. But uh the the whole play aspect of it is again, it's this um it can relate back to our fear, the the whole fear of death. I just I often feel when I go out into the the homosphere, the Homo sapien sphere. I should say, uh, uh, that I'm, I'm surrounded by people who are all, you know, they're in their little caves and you just see little yellow eyes peeking out just to make sure that everything's all right. And I'm out here in the, in the rain or sun or snow or whatever. And I'm like, dude, come on. It's fine. Come play. It's, it's cool. Let's, let's, let's fight a little bit. Hey, let's fight. Like you ask somebody if they want to fight, physically or otherwise and they're like because we're enemies no yeah no i used to fight with my brother we get along great it's what just-
1: happened to see when that started to go and, and to become something weird that ha- i mean yeah that was exactly and it was obvious like to occasionally just jump off the roof you know and to ride across the freeway on your bikes after midnight, you're not supposed to be out on the freeway and bikes, but you're not supposed to be outside the house after midnight and in deep fog, you know, in Oakland. Mm-hmm. You know, well, that was just what you know, it seems so sensible to do those things. And maybe this new paradigm will start bringing some of these things back. I don't know. I, I hope so. Yeah,
0: I hope so. I too. hope so. I hope so too. On that note, do you have a tool and a tip?
1: I do. I do. And uh, as always, they sound simple. It's the discipline of doing them. Right. But the tool is try to develop basic, very, very basic, but nonetheless, robust synoptic or summarizing understandings of the major fields of human knowledge. Calculus, for instance, okay. If you were, you know, asked what what does what is the purpose of calculus, you could say very quickly, well, two things. It does. It would allow you to calculate the area under a curve. It helps you deal with curves, things that aren't nice, neat geometric geometric uh, shapes. It bases on it's based on the, on knowing those geometric shape rules but it allows more flexibility it also allows you to deal with rates of change you know it determining say velocity versus speed and mm-hmm. speed you know without a fixed frame, So you can start to think in those terms, but take about five or six, take the major fields of physics, chemistry, biology, and a couple of the major forms of math, move beyond rote recall of dictionary definitions, which is a wise move generally in life in case anyone's in doubt about that. But try to make your understanding of these major fields of human knowledge Your own—that's really the critical part. It's—it's the cross-reference here is our example of the Solomon Islanders dismantling the earth mover that they've been gifted by some, you know, government authority or foreign company. You know, they don't just go, "Yeah, we're going to fire this." No, they take it apart so they understand it. They build their magic into it. They know what parts need to be refreshed and changed over time. They understand it. Make your understanding your own. Don't worry about specializations like microbiology. Focus biology was is good enough, but strive for a really simple richness and a confidence of expression. And you'll notice that you're confident when your posture is good and your your level of articulation is simple but consistent, mm. and. A simple level of grasp, you know, and we say, "I really grasp that idea." A hands-on sense of that, and a level of substance. Here's this is the target that would be meaningful to a smart child. Okay, so you're not a, you're not reducing these grand fields of knowledge that people win Nobel prizes in and that have in some cases, 2000 years of history or more. But you, what you're saying is fair to it in proportion to how many words and, and how much time you're given, <clears throat> but to a, a, a childlike frame of mind, a smart child. Now in doing this, I suggest you'll advance three crucial projects for your own self-benefit. One, You'll start to more more fully own and embody more of your knowledge in your own language, in your own language. That's crucial. That's the Solomon Islander magic approach. Two, you'll start to see the shadow outline of the great hidden questions that humanity has both invented and discovered. You know, the peculiar shape of what I'm starting to call the underculture mind, where the questions really come from, the question machine, which is the basis of all curiosity. And three, you'll start to see your relationship or lack of relationship to these fields of knowledge in in new lights. And that will shed a whole new light on twists and turns in your life,
0: can I stop um, you for a second? Mm-hmm. What is your what's your relationship to calculus, your personal one? A very mystical
1: appreciation of its flexibility in dealing with the last point, really time and and the and the nature of uh, eccentric change that steps beyond rigid formulas that merely you know it it builds on those formulas you know pi r squared. area. you have to know that you have to just accept that to know what the area of a circle is and calculus builds on that but i like the the flexibility of it the finesse of it the the courage that it offers to deal with complicated curves with unknowns with variables and I can see that refining my actual ability in even just humble ways uh, with literal calculus as as a field of math is helpful for my brain. And I think it's good to keep cognition sharp, but I can see it as a very powerful metaphorical tool And I'm very careful now about what tools from the sciences and other fields I take on as metaphors because, you know, usually we don't understand them and we mush them and it just becomes a mess. I think calculus can be uh, handled that way. And for instance, one of my definitions for in a writing context for plot is a calculus of incident. And I think that's an important way to to see it and to think of of being able to to deal with it. But I think it's a magical weapon of confidence in the face of what might resist formulaic, immediate uh, calculation.
0: Mm -hmm. I
1: think it's interesting that it's called calculus because it's, uh, you know, calculation is itself a very complicated uh, idea. Um, and it's kind of been diminished and, and I think kind of, uh, well wounded in our era, you know, when we think of coding and everything is sort of calculated, you know, it's, everything is computed and processed. I think calculus, if we really look at it, brings some of the organic mystery and oscillation
0: Mm. back, you know, interesting, interesting. I'm so, I'm writing like a madman. I don't know if you can see this. Yeah. Okay. and then uh, this is what we've done this episode, so we've got that, we've got that.
1: Oh, this is healthy, man! I, and I the, well, me too. It's it's,
0: it's too. how I it's how I think now. I literally, you know, I sing the praises of it every chance I get. But but r- I've been writing while listening and writing while speaking, and <laughs> and it's just it's just a better way for for me to be engaged. I find that if I'm not doing this, my mind can wander. It doesn't wander if I'm doing that. Sorry for for the digression, but that is a fantastic idea. I like the idea with the earth mover. That's one of my favorite motifs of the show, specifically because in terms of what you're talking about right now, they will disassemble the earth moving machine and they will understand it. But if the inventor of the machine came to them they wouldn't be speaking the same language about it and they wouldn't have the same, uh, sort of teleological understanding of why things (laughs) worked, you know, like what's the, what is the purpose of this?
1: That's Uh, a crucial word. I mean, it's, it's one of the basic words of, 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 you know, a reasonable philosophical vocabulary and it's come up before. I think we, um, we pick up on that in, um, the Psychic Defense Manual, but I think teleological is a crucial tie-in with your search for that tripod, triadic harmonic. That's what you're really, that's the issue. And is there another way to think of teleology in terms of Mm end goal purpose Can we reverse that? And Mm -hmm. that has a lot to say about, for writers, I think. It has a lot to do with, you know, the question of imposition of plot, And, you know, one of the the things that I think we both enjoy, well, people generally do, I think, about David Lynch is his completely unconventional uh, approach to narrative, his dismantling of that, his contentment with things that don't make any sense and don't seem to have any purpose. And teleology and that sense of end goal and how we reverse time to see pattern and design, you know, there's a mm-hmm. lot of stuff going on in there. I think we we can start, you know, to build this positive sense of, of new paradigm with with kind of tinkering with that. That's an earth-moving machine that we need to take apart.
0: Absolutely. All right. Good one.
1: Okay. Um So, yeah, just I think that tool is really important. Keep it very simple. Focus on major fields. But you could even for people who are really uh, pressed for time or just don't feel confident, think about understanding really clearly one or two basic concepts. For instance, just the difference between velocity and speed. Mm -hmm. If you say a car is going, I don't know, 60 miles an hour, that's a perfectly fine definition of speed. Velocity, a car is going 60 miles per hour in a southwesterly direction. Okay, direction, it's a vector, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's Mm -hmm. another one of these little examples of where oscillation and extension figures into something. And those are both very simple ideas. But if we get a little bit clearer of them, I find what happens is my thinking, I really start to get on board with the idea of fields, the field theory idea, both physical energy fields and conceptual linguistic ones, rather than frames and categories, which, you know, I, I can't really, you know, I can't really do anything about those. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I'm just mm-hmm. always fighting, you know, pushing that back. And, so that's the tool. And here's the tip. This is tips are, you know, always a little bit more down to earth, you know, Cheetos mm-hmm. in the bowl, bikinis, you know, sizzling.
0: Sizzling at 56.
1: Try experiment with friends, family first. You can do it with strangers, and and but I wouldn't try to do it like at a job, you know, interview or something. I mean, go with people you know, but try introducing some complete non sequiturs. You know, see what happens. How much attention are even close friends paying to what you're saying? If they notice, what do they? How do they react? What do they conclude? Are they puzzled? Do they get offended? Do they think you're making fun of them? Everyone thinks they're making, you know, and they're always so nervous if you break out a line, unless you say, not to change the subject, but that's exactly what I'm going to do. No, just go straight into it and see what happens. Break the pattern. How much laterality do these friends allow you as opposed to linearity? And whoa is it significant that word allow Mm. they are allowing you to introduce non-sectors maybe that's a new way to think of that relationship you know maybe that's maybe that's kind of a power you know statement about how things work maybe there's Other forces at work, if you're allowed to diverge, you know, and go off in a different direction suddenly, you know, like a living thing, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe there's a problem in that word allow. So anyway, just give that a try with some, you know, and just see, it can often be a source of humor, and, but it gives them some permission and we need to, in these relations, in all our relationships, understand that permission approval thing that we have going on because so we don't get that right in conversation. How is anyone going to get that right naked, you know, trying to get it on, you know, mm-hmm. that's not going to work very well.
0: That is how I always have tried to speak to people. Yeah. Uh, I think it's. You do. <laughs> I do. It's really one of the ways. It's the difference between a conversationalist and, well, everybody else. The ability to just switch things up. You're talking about what time is your flight, right? and then saying, uh, "Oh, hey, nice, uh, nice pen." This is a very simple example, right, of just pointing things out that you see, but. The deeper and deeper I get in with my friends, I do like to just say whatever's top of mind at the moment. Even if we're having a discussion about something completely different, it'll remind me and keeps things fresh.
1: Well, one of the, the signs of, of, of sort of what we often think of as mental health problems is when someone just does blurt out one of these things and you realize some of their inter- interior monologue has just crept out. And that could be a problem. Okay, there that that can especially
0: be. when it's a racial slur or something like that.
1: Well, d- yeah, d- it, it, but it, it really there. It, I think when we re- when we register disturbance, there is a good reason, but it can be entirely intuitive, and it may not be as straightforward as an obvious. You shouldn't ever say that sort of thing. It could just be, yeah, that's kind of weird. But on the other hand, the flip side is think how often this technique is the basis of stand-up comedy, you know? it is the entire program of observational humor, the Jerry Seinfeld sort of starting point, or, you know, someone just wanders up to the microphone and goes, well, what is the story about this Humpty Dumpty thing? All the king's horses and all the king's men. I mean, what what idiot would put horses in charge first? (laughs) Wouldn't you have given the king's men the first go? You know, Mm -hmm. and on and on it goes, you know? And, but the non-sequitur thing ties in directly with our, emergent notion Mm -hmm. of the time factor cause and effect, you know, what makes it non sequitur, you know, Mm -hmm. what Mm exactly, you know, you don't normally hear things perfectly harmonizing.
0: Yeah. You don't normally hear people call things sequitur, but what I will say is that I found it way. uh, I found it alarmingly easy to get a replacement copy of my birth certificate.
1: See, now that's a beautiful, <laughs> that's a beautiful, example. because, I, and one of the other things, like that was a whole well-constructed, completely uh, <laughs> adequate conventional sentence. So it goes right through, you know, and, and the brain is going that, that wasn't word salad. That's not right. schizophrenic speech. That was a coherent thought. It just, now I'm wondering, well, and, and it's a beautiful sort of power like because it makes people think, did I miss something? <laughs> what, what did he say before? Oh, I gotta press the rewind button. And 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 oh no, there isn't a rewind button on this. I have to, oh I remember. And it's like, you know, am I being gaslit? You know, and all yeah, of, it just yeah. it's it's such it's a
0: like, are you fucking thing. with me, man? Yeah.
1: <laughs> yes. And the answer is yes, and it's good. That's right. partly fun, you know, it's mm-hmm, games, mm-hmm. it's fight, it's yeah. These people on their toes, for God's sakes. Absolutely. You know, it's just, I mean, it's uh, all that kind of game, you know, is just, it strengthens the mind, but it does test relationships. There's no question about that. Mm-hmm. And that's its purpose. And I think that in, well, I don't know, i I know I would we've talked about, this. there have been many relationships as in collegial sort of, you know, network art connect that have kind of stretched thin and broken apart as they do. I think 2023 is the time to really strengthen the relationships that are here with us and to employ that dynamic that has kept them strong and vigorous and supple, you know, like kind of greasing a rope or vines, you know, lubricating keeping it, you know, from drying out.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Apply that to new relationships that form, that that's kind of respectful, almost, uh, well, sort of sacred meditative way of of approaching new relationships and friendships. You know, you don't need a lot of them, but you need them vigorous. And you mm-hmm. need them strong enough to take that kind of game playing. And game playing is, of course, the way to reinforce them. So it's, it's an ends, achieving the means and vice versa. And that's a good model all around. So,
0: yeah. Agreed. Absolutely. It's been a weird week for dreams um, over here in probably, again, having to do with the aforementioned spirits rising up out of the turned over earth. I love that. But I have felt a sort of closeness of dreams when they're portrayed in film. The classic move is to put a fog machine and to have them. These have been, even in my memory of them, not in some distant part of my mindscape, but in a full wraparound IMAX screen from one temple to the other, rejection, face hugger style into my mind. And we've had uh, Rios got a bit of sleep paralysis last night. So I think, again, that this has a lot to do with the spiritual ecosystem around here right now, probably a bit of the astrological one, too. We are in a retrograde, uh, which I felt, as I always do, the most deleterious effects of at the beginning. I tend to start about three days before it happens, and mine's usually completely cleared out five or six days before it's officially over.
1: You are you. I notice you are sensitive. You're you're attuning for you know, or a kind of a transponder, you know, for that. I mean, I think everybody is, is the argument, but I, mm-hmm. I, yeah, you're very aware of that, and I think there have been some great incidents that we've covered about that where you know there's re- there really is some stuff happening in your ecosystem absolutely yeah.
0: yeah 100% but i'm interested to hear what your dreams have been like uh this past week okay well I... I mean i do want the i want the dream in general but i'm wondering if there's a weird dreamscape going on right now how is your uh, uh nighttime ecosystem going well it's been a little strange because i uh I had my
1: niece come down from Seattle uh but she was here for 3 days and we did an awful lot. We we were out all the time photographing, videoing, having kind of adventures and stuff. And I was listening to a lot of her news about dating and and her the changes in her life. Mm-hmm. Um so that kind of it it both threw off my sleep schedule. Uh And also, I was very tired because we were doing a lot of stuff. So I felt a kind of conflict that way. And it was Mm -hmm. sort of like a low-grade – when you go to sleep thinking, a low-grade sort of flu. And you think, ah, I might hit some vitamin C, you know, before I go to bed. And kind of – and it had sort of interrupted a really rich, strange, erotic, surreal, classical – uh, Jungian Freudian psychological dream sort of phase. And I came out of it last night into kind of a, an intermediate zone between those. And this is this is what it, I was in Algeria and it was like the back to the the, the trip I made the one time I was there because uh, I haven't, I've spent time in other parts of Africa, but not Northern Africa so much, and that was a period of just insane, counterintuitive uh, confrontation for me. Um, it was the first time that I really got the idea of like scalding hot tea being a way to cool down in like 124 degrees Fahrenheit. You know that kind of conflict. I I didn't understand anything about the culture the music didn't make any sense no time signature no you're always kind of lost it's like putting your hand into a giant pillow um time time there doesn't make any sense you know it really is Arab desert time is very very different than anything I was used to. There are very few landmarks in any desert that kind of defines what what a desert is. So it's hard to navigate. And then there was the sounds, the ringing of the sand. I've experienced that in, uh, well, the Sonoran Desert down into Mexico and a little bit of Death Valley, but nothing like there. And, the Gobi isn't really a desert the same way. I'm, I'm talking about sand, really ringing and echoes, and a disturbing sense of you know you're always turning around, going you know what what and and there's nothing there, and of course there are mirages. It's very confusing. So all of that richness was there in the dream, a complete kind of uh, vivid recall of that experience that really knocked me off my feet at the time. Years and years ago. But in the dream, this wind moves through and desert winds. And the where I live now in the high desert of Nevada is like this. And and Oklahoma is the wind is a very, you know, they call the wind Mariah from Oklahoma, right? It's alive. Well, it blows through this set of swirling sort of dunes that are beautiful, voluptuous, sort of female shapes you know the only sort of discernible shapes in this kind of you know lunar sort of landscape and as the wind blows through what's revealed is this enormously long serpentine caravan uh and i that made me think of of later like last time we i was talking about the the magical invention of the inn and i don't know if listeners heard that i meant i-n-n as in caravanserai a kind of meeting ground oasis sort of thing so that may have been what's what was on my mind but there's this enormous just frozen in time because the the figures that emerge in you know like this weird atmospheric music come to life well they're not alive they're all petrified as if they were just flash blasted by some sandstorm and they're just just stop still and I, I so I can walk around we you know I can look at them and like they're they're Nomads and traders, soldiers, starving families, uh, Arabic people of, of of tribal Arabs, Africans from different places, uh, Gypsies of all kinds. The, but then there are people who look like maybe refugees from across the you know the Mexican border in in the southern U.S. Uh, there are camels, jeeps, and also really weird, exotic, robotic devices and vehicles so it's mm-hmm. kind of a weird combination of time and history ancient mm-hmm. egypt and mad max
0: mm-hmm.
1: and but it's it's completely they're stopped dead still just completely paralyzed and encrusted so there's it's a it's a living statue it's a parade long statue <laughs> and Some of the people actually even look like homeless people off the streets of of, of Seattle or Portland or San Francisco. So it's international. Well, the Berber guides, Tory people that that I'm with in the dream, just as I was in real life, they start yodeling and yelling and just hollering like jackals, just freaking out. And as they do, every single figure in this dead still parade starts to disintegrate. Some explode, some just crack, some dissolve as if, you know, a liquid has been poured on them, but they're just, and the wind just comes and takes them away. And I find myself back in Nevada, I'm on the shore of Lake Mead, beautiful clear sky, not the strangeness of of the Algeria desert at all. Familiar, not far from my house. And there is a guy in the sky. He's called the guy in the sky. He's a real local. He has one of those little motorized lawnmower engine paragliders, totally suicidal. Easy, easy way to die. But he's really, really annoying because he flies this thing super early on Saturdays and Sundays. And it's got... (laughs) It's really an overstrained, like, you know, like a stationary Briggs and Stratton engine that like, you know, middle schoolers might use Mm -hmm. to to Mm -hmm. learn about mechanics, really annoying, loud sound. And he's right over the middle of the lake. And that's a mysterious, dangerous place to be. And the parafail foils, uh, the, the actual sail is this bright red, and it looks totally out of place against this prehistoric, you know, weird other planet blue of like me. And I think to myself, imagine if he just suddenly stalled and crashed. And right behind me, there's this rattle of a can blown in the wind, really American versus the, you know, the eerie ringing of the Saharan sort of thing. No spirit. This is an empty can. But I turn around, and when I look back, the the guy in the sky is gone. And I think to myself, wow, it's like Icarus in Bruegel's painting. And I teach a class on that because what both W.H. Auden and William Carlos Williams wrote poems about that because Icarus goes in really at a hard angle and the guy in the sky is just gone. And I turn around and the can is blowing away. I go, I'm not going to take any responsibility for that. It was just a, (laughs) it was just a thought. And I woke up on that note.
0: (laughs) That's great. You said uh, some very interesting words there. One of my favorites was, it was very odd, like putting your hand in a giant pillow. That, I, that's very interesting and lovely. I liked the words, a parade long statue. There's a lot of music there. I always liked the word Berber, the Berber guides. You see exactly yeah. what you need uh lawnmower engine paraglider a stationary briggs and stratton motor parafoil lake mead icarus and bruegel that's my impressionistic note that's it you got saying. a good
1: you got a good picture you were there with me in i the was drink. right
0: there i was right there that rattling tin can well thanks for listening folks it's getting late here i hope you enjoyed this one i know i sure did And uh, we'll be back next week.
1: Take care, everyone. Start 23 off in good style with momentum. Get ready. Get ready in a good way.
0: Get ready. And remember also that Clorox wipes only kill 99.9% of bacteria. (laughs) Says
1: dad.